This is episode 14 with former Socceroos captain, Paul Wade. I'm your host, Tristan Cannell. Big thank you for tuning in. I've got a great guest today. We're going to turn a little bit towards soccer. And we've got former Socceroos captain Paul Wade in the house. So Paul was actually captain of the first game I ever watched in terms of 1993. I remember sitting down with my old man and watching Australia take on Argentina at the Sydney Football Stadium, a game where the Socceroos actually had a one-on draw with the team against the team led by the Argentinian great Maradona. So it's going to be great just to pick Wadey, Wadey's mind on you know different teams that he picked, he played for, and you know also coming up against the great Maradona. So I'm sure that Wadey will have plenty of awesome stories to share with us. Before we get Paul on, just a big thank you for everyone subscribing and leaving me five star reviews on iTunes. It is highly appreciated. If you want to get in touch with me, please either send me an email at info, sorry, email at tristan at talkingwithtk.com, or you can find me on social media, Facebook and Instagram, I'm Tristan Cannell, or on Twitter, I am T Cannell Fitness. So please share any of the episodes that you're liking with your family and friends, and please do get in touch and tag me in posts. Now, without further ado, here is my interview with Paul Wade. My special guest is Paul Wade. Paul is a legend of Australian soccer and former Socceroos captain with 84 international caps, two World Cup qualifying campaigns, an Olympic Games in Seoul in 1988, and two NSL championships. He's a mid-year personality, he's a motivational speaker, and I'm honoured to welcome to Talking with TK, Paul Wade. Paul, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, very, very kind. 84A internationals, but my mom says, how many good ones? <laughs> how many do you think, mate? <laughs> yeah. She's really harsh, my mum. She is. What? Oh, she, was yeah. she your biggest accountability when you were going through your career? <laughs> I, I remember getting my first yellow card. Uh, boy, I never forgot it. Oh, she was there watching. I was... I was 16. Boy, did I cop it in the car on the way home. I don't know, really. It was uh, it just shows you how much of an influence your parents have, doesn't it? Oh, big time, mate. And, you know, that influence, you know, you were born in England. You know, you moved yeah. to Australia. It was actually interesting because I had Michael Klim on the show yesterday, and yeah. he was born overseas as well, and he moved to Australia when he was 11 as well, which is quite right. coincidental. But yeah. what I asked him actually was, how long did it take for him to lose his accent? So, same question for you. <laughs> Some people say I still haven't. They all, uh, I don't know, maybe it's the group, because I, I was playing football uh, as a teenager, and I, when I first started playing senior football, there was a lot of poms at the club that 
that I was playing at. So I don't know, maybe it was the fact that I wanted to fit in. I was the youngest and maybe I just kept talking like them. So, you know, you would not pick my brothers as poms, but I think, um, I don't know, maybe 11 is that time where you just start to, to set in concrete and certainly yeah. uh, formed with uh, playing with these guys from England, that's for sure. Yeah, Wadi, how many brothers do you have? Two brothers uh, and a sister. My uh, my eldest brother, well, he's younger than me, the next one down, he died of a brain hemorrhage, which was, uh, you know, as we talk, it'll uh, it's quite an interesting story. Not the fact that he died, but, you know, the yeah. story behind that. Yeah, it's interesting. Were you guys all very competitive at soccer when you were growing up? Well, um, no, not really, because I was so much taller than them. I was two or three years ahead of them, so it didn't matter how much they tried to bash me. I was always laughing, <laughs> which used to make them even more angry. So uh, I just I just drew on that uh, superiority. Yeah, right. What made you choose soccer as a sport there, Wadey? I lived in an area of, uh, of St. Helens, the old rugby league town, uh, where if you didn't play football, you had no mates. Yeah. So that's that's all we did, you know. We, you know, you hear all the oldies say, "Oh, we didn't go home until we we couldn't see under the street lights and all that." It is true. That's exactly what happens. You yeah. don't need to go home, but you had to be home before it got dark, and that's what we were doing all the time: pub car parks, bits of grass, anything we could find with a ball, a couple of sticks. And yeah, just enjoy yourself, boys and girls. Yeah, so so wait, you're a northerner then. What was that? You're a northerner. You come from north north end. Yeah, yeah. I was born just outside Manchester, and I lived a long time in St Helens. And yeah, it was only because my dad was an electrical engineer, and he uh, he got a job there. Uh, yeah, you're right. The northwest of England, working class, as they say. Oh, I, was, I wasn't brung up proper like what you was. <laughs> <laughs> so you come to Australia, you know, you debut for Australia against the Tasmania selection. It was, it was pretty quickly, it was only 1984 that you actually yeah. got, got to do it all. You know, you must have yeah. been pretty, pretty proud of, you know, your, your rise to the ranks so quickly and the fact that you got to represent your new country so quickly as well. Yeah, look, at although I was 23, I think, 23 when I played my first game for the Socceroos uh, proper. But, yeah, 1984 was when I went played in Canberra against China. And I and it wasn't an A international. It was uh, a B international. So and, and it was such a whirlwind thing that I had no real intention of dreaming of being a, an international. I was just playing the best I could every day at that time for my club. Do you know what I mean? I was ha- yeah. That was my world. That was my international plan on the weekend. So I never grew up with the pressure of, oh, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And, hey, I enjoy my football. If I played well, whether we won or lost, it didn't really matter because I went to bed thinking, yes, nailed it. Yeah. Do you miss the old NFL days? I'll ask you that because when I grew up, I've got a lot of family down in Melbourne. Uh, my dad's yeah. originally from Mauritius, but a lot of his yeah. brothers married Greek Greek ladies. So a lot of my cousins are Greek, half Greek. Yeah. 
and they all love <laughs> South Melbourne. So the two people they used to always speak about was yourself and Paul Trimboli. So I used to get all the stories growing up about you guys killing it because I used to go to all your games. So, yeah, <laughs> do you miss those NFL days with South Melbourne? I, yeah, look, I, I do in the fact that uh, we were playing and we all we all had jobs and, and it was very... We were we were lucky, really. We were we were playing at the highest level in this country. We were playing for our country, and we all had jobs. I I used to ask the boss on Wednesday if I could have Thursday and Friday off because we were playing <laughs> Brazil on Sunday. Wow! You know what I mean? The, yeah. So there wasn't the, we loved what we did, but there was no stress that went along with if I don't make it, I'm not going to have a job type thing. So. We would. Um, our attitude was just as professional, you know, playing in front of five thousand, ten thousand people at Middle Park in Melbourne, all Greeks. Uh, it didn't matter whether it was there or playing for your country. You you just loved it because you, know, yeah. you were able to do it because you were. It was an honour. Yeah. Do you think things would have changed if you were full time professional in terms of the way you, you approached the games? I couldn't have done anything more professional apart from getting paid professional wages because, you know, with a national team, we used to earn 300 a win, 200 a draw, and $100 if we lost. Wow. So money wasn't a factor, you know. But, uh, yeah, sure, I used to drink. I used to eat two Big Macs, large fries, and a large Coke, <laughs> and then a pint of or a, a litre of milk on the way home from training. You know, that's the sort of... Be, training hurt that much more so it makes me think I wonder if we'd have been on the right diet doing the right things how much more we could have got out of ourselves but um, definitely attitude and application everything else that goes under the banner of professional we were in yeah do you think that because you guys were more working class that you understood each other a little bit more and you know maybe we're a little bit closer than today's modern day players yeah, look, there's a, there's a bit in that. I, uh, we are all working class. So we had no misconceptions that we're anything other than good footballers playing at the highest level in this country. We never rated ourselves any higher. So there was a camaraderie there, and I'm sure there is today. Um, I'm sure there is. Um, it might be a little bit different in the fact that they're all playing for their next contract. Uh, they haven't got a job to go to on a Monday. We did, so if we if we didn't win or we did we got dropped it hurt but it wasn't the end of the world and i just wonder how these uh, footballers today handle the stress i'm glad we didn't have to do that yeah yeah brady you won two nsl championships you scored the yeah. winner in one of them right <laughs> i uh i scored uh, one of the, the first penalty when south melbourne won it in 1991 uh, i didn't score for Brunswick Juventus, uh, what I do remember is that I didn't get a wink of sleep the night before the first game because <laughs> back in the day it used to be a northern and southern division, didn't it? Yeah. And the two, uh, the winner of both divisions, played off in the grand final. Uh, I did score the goal in the southern division grand final to win it, but uh, in the big one, no, I didn't. Uh, I hardly touched the ball. I was that tired. Yeah, back in those days, where did they used to play the grand final? They just well the the Southern Division. I think there was Adelaide, Melbourne, uh, were the two main centres that played in the uh, Southern Division, and uh, we used to play at probably Olympic Park was the uh, that was the pristine that was the stadium you wanted to play on Olympic Park in uh, in Melbourne, and then Bob Jane Stadium I think we call yep. it now, mm-hmm. 
that was another mecca place to be. Then Summer Street, where Melbourne, Croatia played, and the Olympic Village, where Heidelberg played. Now, they were games. One team we hated, and the other team we felt sorry for. And either way, <laughs> gave us a bit of drive to make sure you don't lose. Yeah, most definitely. Do you remember when you got called up for the main team, obviously the Socceroos, for the very first time? What yeah. game was that, and what was the process for them calling you up? Wow. I was, um, I don't know. I mean, it was playing for Brunswick Juventus then, and I'd, I had a coach that drilled into us how important fitness was and structure. So every time we went out on the park, we knew exactly what we were going to do. And we were going to score goals and win games because we were far fitter than anybody else. And it's true. And mm. that suited my game because that's all I had, really. I could tackle, head, and run. And that's all I had. So for me to have a coach like that, it was it, it seemed to fit with the coaching staff at that time. So just playing for Brunswick Juventus in 85 and we... We won the league, and then, and I guess by winning the league, you you get noticed. And I think we were just called into camp. There's about thirty of us in the from the southern region, and I just happened to make the last twenty. And from there, got whittled down again. And then the northern boys, like Sydney and Brisbane boys, came in, and I was still in the squad. But wow. it was only because I could run and I was enthusiastic and I was always shouting uh, encouraging that was the only reason if I didn't talk nobody would know that I was there and I would never have got picked yeah. how many years did you end up being captain of the Socceroos six years uh, 90 to 96 was it Eddie was it Eddie Thompson that gave you the, the captaincy yeah Tomo said uh, actually no yeah we're in a meeting at the AIS ready to go to um, Southeast Asia somewhere. And uh, he said, uh, for this trip, uh, Paul Wade will be the captain. Now, that's the first I ever knew of it. Nobody ever uh, gave me any idea that I was going to be because it was Graham Arnold and Alan Davidson and yeah. Robbie Slater. All these guys would have been next in line, but they went overseas. So to be announced at a a meeting before we go to, I don't know, was it Indonesia or somewhere like that? It was like a real shock to me. And I didn't know. And then people uh, did an interview with Tomo and said, oh, you know, why did you pick Paul White as the captain? And he said, it's purely because of his enthusiasm. He's ugly. It's the only <laughs> name we can pronounce. And, uh, and he's here in Australia, you know? So that was the only reason. If Arnie had stayed, he'd have been the captain. I would have got dropped. Things fall into place, don't they? There's always a reason that something happened. Are you a big believer in fate, are you? I am. I mean, you've got to be uh, work hard to uh, to be in the right position, to be lucky, to be uh, to make it your fate. But yeah, I believe in that. There's a, an element of luck in everything that we do. Yeah, Eddie Thompson. I brought up his name before. He's always intrigued me. What would you say was the biggest lesson that you learned from Eddie? It didn't really teach me anything because everything that he taught, I already knew. Mm. I'm not saying that I, I didn't learn um, tactical things here and there, but the the whole 
the whole reason I was there, I already knew. That's the reason I was there. So he was just the one who gave me the chance. God bless him. He's no longer with us, obviously. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, I can't say I learned how to pass a ball because of Eddie Thompson. I did what I did the best I could, and Tomo recognized it and, and gave me the captain's armband. Yeah, obviously he had a long career, you know, just sticking on coaches. Is there anyone in particular that really was influential? I think that coach, when I uh, got picked for the national team, um, Len McKendry, his name was, um, mm-hmm. he was just, uh, he he was perfect for the game that I played. You know, the structure was, hey, when you get it, you look forward. And if you can, nine times out of ten, you knock it forward. And you guys who are forward, you look for it forward. Do you know what I mean? Everything yeah. was orchestrated. We worked on free kicks and corners. So if we weren't playing well, we would score goals from free kicks and corners. But it was the toughest pre-seasons that I've ever had. But, wow, it paid off. Nobody ever actually ever said that um, being physically fit, strong, being able to run further and faster than anybody else was the key to success. I suppose it is to a certain extent now. But the difference is they're more skillful now. Mm. I just want to pick your brain a little bit more on leadership. When you first took over, did you try to style yourself on someone, or what ingredients did you bring to that team? It's a good question. Um, I know Jimmy Rooney was a, gave me my first break. Jimmy Rooney played 99 times for the Socceroos. He came mm. out from Scotland, absolute genius. I played with him in the state league with Croydon City. So. When he got the job at Green Gully in 1984, I just went with him. Uh, he, he was a new coach to the national team scene. And he said, look, I've got this job. Do you want to come with me? I said, yes. So that's my lucky break. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I was not good enough to go and trial with anyone, but I just had to get that lucky break to go with him. And I remember walking across the car park and he said, because I just, had my, uh, I was just walking across in my bare feet on gravel, and he grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and just dressed me down about, you know, those are my tools of trade, and I was, I've got to look after him. It was a, a real wake-up call to the fact that you've really got to look after yourself, both physically, mentally, psychologically. It's not, it's becoming more and more. Uh, your trade, and not just to kick around in the backyard. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, the professional in, professionalism was born out of that moment where I thought, yeah, you've really got to take care of yourself now in all those facets, physical, mental, psychological, and technical. Guys, we hope you're enjoying the episode with Paul Wade. If you haven't yet, please check out some of our other episodes with the likes of Michael Klim. Here's a quick sneak peek of the episode with Michael. I would say, look, it's, for me, it comes down to finding the purpose. What is your purpose? So whatever it might be, if it's education or if it's sport or if it's art, it's, if you have that purpose, it creates passion. And if you have passion, you can do anything. It's almost, and then it, it, all those other things flow on. If it's, you know, if you, then you need to build a team or if you need to 
you know, whatever it might be, if you need to develop something, or I think it's finding your purpose. So, um, you know, and I think it's, yeah, for me that was that was the key. And then ultimately having a crack at it, because I think there's so many people walking around and have some great ideas out there, and sometimes just a little bit shy to take that, take that final plunge. So um, I would say find your purpose and have a go. So go back and check out that and many others. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show via iTunes or Stitcher or for Android users, you can check out the website www.talkingwithtk.com. Now back to the show. For sure. Paul, did you find it hard, you know, especially in 93 when you guys were playing Argentina, like you were pretty much the only national player in the squad that came from the Australian League pretty much in the starting 11. Yeah. Did you, did you find it hard to kind of... Because obviously there'll be egos because some of the players were playing for some good clubs. Did yeah. you find it hard to kind of, you know, stamp your authority despite the fact that, you know, some of them, you know, might be looking down on you, some of them looking up on you? Do you get yeah. what I mean by that? No, oh, absolutely. There were uh, some really strong characters, you know, and I, I wasn't loud. In fact, you probably might not have known I was there if I didn't have uh, the captain's armband on and won the toss every third or fourth go. Um, I, I did my leadership out on the park. Mm. But when we weren't on the park, I wasn't ranting and raving. We we had those people, and they were good for the for the dressing room, the ranters and the ravers and the funny. Like Arnie wouldn't shut up, neither would Robbie Slater. <laughs> Charlie Yankos wouldn't shut up, but he was more in the encouraging, demanding, you know, we've got to do this and do that. That's when he was a captain and I was a player. But, yeah, you know what? It's a tough gig. These guys were earning a lot of money in Europe. And I had a job playing in Australia. So, look, they probably didn't, but I felt quite intimidated at times Mm. by who they were, where they were playing, how much they were earning, all those sorts of things. But I was pr- protected by the fact that I did my leadership on the park. I didn't mind telling them where to run and what to do on it. And I encouraged them to do more than they thought they could. But off it, I don't know whether I... I mean, I could do press conferences. Yeah. And I could you know, do all those sorts of things. But when it came to being the loudest... Uh, dragging everybody to different venues and all that sort of no, that wasn't me at all. So I guess it just takes all kinds, doesn't it? To live. Yeah. So that that kind of one two week period when you played Argentina in ninety three, you know, you spoke before about having a job. Did you yeah. have to take what leave? Yeah, dead right. Yeah. I used to for the Olympics in eighty eight, I uh, can imagine uh, Bob I was a draftsman, mechanical draftsman, drew air conditioning. Um so the guys in the factory could make it and the guys on site could install it. So that's what I did for a job. So you know, to, to all of a sudden go to the boss and say, it's not just Thursday and Friday I need off. It's the week before the Olympics and the two weeks of the Olympics. And, you know, he could... And I know a lot of players who were let go or sacked because mm. they chose to take the time to play for their country. I was very lucky that I had a boss that took real pride in the fact that one of his uh, employees was playing for Australia. So I was, again, very, very lucky. All right. Sticking to 93, Maradona comes to town. You find out a week before that he's coming to play. 
you think he's going to play midfield. So what sort of preparation do you do for a superstar like Maradona? Jeez, I'll tell you what. You don't. You just panic. You just yeah. absolutely fret. No, I, uh, I was lucky that, um, I mean, as far as emotion goes, it was just so up and down. Like, you'd be up, I'm training well, I know what to do, and then you'd get home, and the only thing that they showed out of the whole sporting bulletin was Maradona. Juggling <laughs> the ball with his laces undone. And all of a sudden, the stress levels go up, and it's not fun being where you are anymore because you're so panicky. And then you train, and you come down, and you feel good. So it was a real roller coaster. But I remember Tomo said, have a look at his last two games, lady. So I did. And out of that, I got, you know, he only uses his left foot and he's not very tall. And, you know, he's really strong. And all these things were building up in as, as part of my armory and how I was going to combat this. And then the night before we played them, um, we had a practice match. And Raul Blanco played the role of Maradona. So this is mm. on... Uh, at the Sydney Football Stadium, you know, yep. and and we did it was a dress rehearsal, So I thought, wow, if I've got to do this tomorrow night, I said to Raoul, this is going to kill me. You know, <laughs> I don't want to be following one bloke, even if he is the best player, arguably, to play the game. And he goes, listen, if he goes to the toilet, you go with him. And I thought, wow, that's uh, totally inappropriate. First of all, <laughs> secondly, secondly, I thought, wow, this is going to be one tough job because I've never had to do a man-marking job. That takes a, a fair bit of discipline when you do what, what I did at that time. So I watched his last two games, got all that information, rehearsed it the night before, honestly. I was so nervous, but I think the key was I wasn't afraid. I wasn't yeah. scared of him because I'd done all that, that preparation. Uh, and I always say that to kids, you know, you can be nervous all your life. That's part of life. That's the way it is. But just make sure you can not be scared. Do whatever you can not to be afraid. Mm. With Maradona, where did you see him for the first time? Was it in the tunnel walking in? Yeah, that was it. Saw uh, all the news clips and all that. And uh, watched games for Napoli and uh, winning the World Cup on his own and all that sort of stuff that we all talk about. Yeah, goal against England. Um, but yeah, that was the first time I'm standing there in the football stadium tunnel and I look to my left and there he is. And I thought, geez, you're not very big. Wow. Did he say anything to you? No, not a thing. In fact, he didn't say anything uh, at all other than, I mean, it was all hand signals. Yeah. And you know, he can't I speak English, can he? No, well, he knocked me. I knocked him over, and I, I apologised. I put my hand out in a, an apologetic way, right? So he's getting up, and he looked at me, and he his his palms were facing the sky, and he shrugged his shoulders as if to say, "Don't worry about it," you know. And I was because I was like, "Wow, I've just knocked Maradona over. I've got to <laughs> apologise." I yeah. wasn't in awe of him, but I just felt that I'm not, I don't want you to think I'm going to kick you to win this game. That was the only reason I did it. So, um, yeah, we didn't, we didn't speak. The only words he spoke to me was after the second game in Buenos Aires, we got beat 1-0, own goal, Alex Tobin, devastated. Yeah, remember Back to super scores, yeah. And um, I thought, I could get two Maradona shirts here. 
I could buy four houses in the eastern <laughs> suburbs of Sydney. And so I went over to him, but just before I got to him, uh, Batistuta walked across. No, sorry, uh, Redondo. Yeah. Um, he walked across. He's a gun. He played for Real Madrid. He walked across me. He's gone, do you want to swap in broken English? And I said, ah, oh, mate, it's all right. I'm going to go and get Maradona's. <laughs> I walked up to Maradona. I walked up to him. And I've gone, uh, Diego, do you want to swap? And he's gone, Fidel Castro. And I thought, Fidel Castro, hey, who did he play for? Who is he? <laughs> and I found out he's a drug lord. But, um, and I walked away going, oh, Redondo. So I've legged it all the way back to see if I can go. And I went, hey, do you want to swap? Do you want to swap? Well, the look, I won't tell you what he was actually saying, but the look said it all. Uh, <laughs> go for multiply was one thought I had that he'd actually uh, said. But it was, I was devastated. I got nothing. I got my shirt that I wore against him at the River Plate Stadium. I could have had Redondos and Maradonas. Jesus, mate, you got too greedy. Yes. You know, when I live in a tiny little shack in the outer northwest of Sydney now, and I could have had two houses in the eastern suburbs. Bummer. <laughs> Wait, why did you wear the number six? A very good question. I think I started wearing number six when I was playing for... Uh, Croydon City Soccer Club, as we called it back then. It wasn't a football club, and it just sort of stuck with me. And when somebody said, right, what number do you want? I would always say, oh, can't have number six. You know, like today, they go, nine, I want nine, or yeah. I want ten. Because when you get to, uh, just to digress, I got um, to an overseas club and uh, or an overseas uh, destination, and the kids were there. I got off the bus and they all ran past me. I thought, where are they going? And they said, we want to know where number nine and number ten are. And I said, well, I'm number six. Yeah, we don't care. Where's the number nine and number ten? That's all they cared about. I don't know. I guess the same was with me and the number six. I just wanted the number six. And then after a while, somewhere, you know, people just get used to it. And they're, oh, yeah, that's what he should. Um, even if I was sitting on the bench, I still got number six. So I was quite honoured that I was able to put a number to my name. Yeah, it's a pretty cool number. Now, Wade, back a few years ago, you had a bit of experience with epilepsy when you were interviewing Paul Ocon. Yeah. I, I know that you're an ambassador now for Epilepsy Action Australia, and you've had successful surgery to help correct your own your own issues with yeah. with, the, with the disease, but... At the yeah. time when, when you what you experienced when you were interviewing Paul, did you know that you had epilepsy? Yeah, I did. I, uh, but I wasn't going to tell you because yeah. I was afraid. Um, I was afraid of uh, discrimination when I was yeah. younger. People laughing at me. Um, I remember telling my mum that something was happening to me, but it was like like her. It was like, oh well. You know, that happens to everyone. And so it really didn't worry me, but I knew these these feelings uh, were happening to me. And it was only 30 seconds, so suck it up. Mm. Don't worry about it. So we didn't worry about it. Um, so I knew. And then when I had my uh, first seizure, then, you know, everybody, everybody knew 
well, when I had my first one on Channel 7, everybody knew, but I had them before then. I um, can't remember how it was. I think I was sitting on the couch and I started smacking my lips. Yeah. For years, people thought it was because I had a bad taste in my mouth. I was actually having seizures. Um, I would sit on the couch and I might have been watching the telly and they'd ask me something and I didn't move. Yeah. They said it was because I was a typical male and I only had one focus for one thing and that was watching the telly. But I was actually having an absence, which is a seizure. So, yeah, there was nobody knew um, except my... And Paul Trimboli knew, I told him. Oh, wow. So there was my family and trimmers. But it's quite scary, you know, when you find out you've got epilepsy. Oh, big time. You, you don't know what it is and what it's going to do to you, and you think you're the only person in the world who's got it. Well, that's part of the thing, that reassurance that you're not and that other people know and they can support you because you need support. You really do because yeah. when, it, when it gets tough, you need somebody to be able to talk to. Paul, well, you know, we spoke before about fate and, you know, obviously going through a seizure, seizure is yeah. not good. But in hindsight, do you, are you glad a little bit that you went through it so you could actually deal with it? Yeah, yeah, dead right. I'm, uh, I'm glad that might sound stupid, but I'm I'm glad that I got caught on Channel 7 because it gave me a chance to now tell other people that, yeah, it was real. It's a real thing. It's not just a story in words. You can read it, but you can actually see it. It happened live on Channel 7 where I couldn't control uh, my brain. I couldn't mm. control my speech. So... I'm glad it happened. I mean, I was I had epilepsy for years and years, and I was always going to have seizures. And uh, so, but to have it on live on Channel Seven, even though I was a bit embarrassed at the time, it was probably the best thing because that made me come out and tell people that it's okay. Yeah, well said, there, Paul. Now, before we got on to the podcast, we'll actually chat a little bit about. Uh, you know, this morning's game and how the soccer yeah. has been going in general. As an expert in the game, what I wanted to just ask you is, you know, we've seen Ange swap the formation of from the soccer You know, predominantly, especially with the Dutch coaches, we went four, two, three, one pretty much for years and years and years. And yeah. now we've got we've got Ange kind of going the three, four, three system, three, two, three, one sort of system, which is a lot yeah. more attacking. Do you kind of yeah. believe for us to make a step from a middle road team to potentially down the track a higher ranked team? Is that the only approach that, you know, Ange really had to make? Well, I don't know whether uh, you can get uh, a lot of, a lot more technique. What we're trying to do now at the lower end of uh, kids' education is provide them with four core skills. Mm. Uh, running with the ball, striking the ball, first touch and one-on-one. If they can master those four by the time they're 13, then they can develop all the other things like the physical, the tactical, the psychological, all those sorts of things. So we're relying on the Rogiches and the Moyes, the special players that we've got. We're relying on, um, you know, the next, Matty Ryan to have that little bit of, um, well, he's, Dare I say it, he's got big balls, hasn't he? Some of the oh, things he that he does. And he's we need him, right don't we? Yeah. yeah, so there's only a certain amount of what we can achieve as far as that worked-on technique goes. 
So if our edge is going to be, we're going to work with what we've got technically and make it work tactically, then I think what Andrew's doing is a very good thing. People are saying, you know, I hear all these so-called experts. We got we got belted in the Asian Champions League, right? Remember that with West yeah. Wanderers and Adelaide and we were getting hammered and they blame the curriculum. Oh, that's a great idea. Why don't we blame the curriculum? Well, I'll tell you what, um, it's the curriculum that is, along with Ange Postecoglou's tactics, that is going to take us to the next step. Because if we don't improve technically, we could run around all we like, wanting to be aggressive and all that, like we used to back in the day when you could. If you can't now. If you don't improve in all facets, it doesn't matter how much we want to win, we won't. Mm. So it's going to be a little bit of pain for a little bit of gain long term, I as well. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I um, assess that coaches. SAP is uh, skills acquisition phase of their education, and we have a skills acquisition program all over Australia. And obviously the kids are under 9, 10s, under 11s, and under 12s. And those are the four years that we get them to teach them those four core skills. So that's been going, it's grown in the, in the last five years, but wait, I would say, because it takes a couple of years to get up and running and for everyone to understand it. So wait for the under 12s of two years, oh, the under, yeah, the under 12s of two years ago. Yeah. Let's judge them on uh, on whether our curriculum is actually working. Let's give yeah. them a chance to come through and prove to all these know-alls that the curriculum is a good thing. Yeah, with your own national schools program that you set up, is that kind of around the age where you really identify the really strong kid coming through around that 10 to 12 years? I used to. I used to think, uh, although, you know what, I didn't make it till I was 23. So yeah. I always aimed a lot of what I did at kids who weren't identified as the best, you know, because maybe there was another Paul Wade who wasn't good enough at um, 9, 10, 11 and 12 years of age. Um, I never went to the Institute of Sport or played for Victoria. It was 23. So I aimed my stuff at them. Um, I think that's, you know, that's what SAP is, that skills acquisition program. We had the director of coaching tell us the other day that this is not necessarily a an elite program. It's a program to find elite players with elite coaching. And I thought that's a good way of putting it. Because if we tell nine-year-old kids that you are or you are not good enough to be an international footballer, then we've got some serious problems, haven't we? Yeah, big time. All right, Paul, to finish up the episode, I've got a couple of personality ones just to finish off. The first one is, what things do you do to manage stress? What things do I do? Tell dad jokes. Yes, absolutely. I manage it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I've got epilepsy. I have a face full of pimples. I've got three girls. I'm not stressed. So I actually listen to ABBA. See that pregnant pause there? You're probably thinking, who? You are kidding me. Seriously? I love ABBA. I love ABBA. I love ABBA. I love them. I could listen to them all the time. So listening to good music, listening to dad jokes. I phoned a uh, mental health hotline the other day, and the answering machine said, for marijuana, press hash. Oh, God. 
I know, right? See, that's good. But you, your first words there proves that's a good dad joke. The other one, when I ran a, a medical center, uh, the girl answered, she goes, incontinence hotline, could you hold, please? <laughs> oh, you've laughed Brady, on that one, so that's on, not Brady. a good... I'm very polite. Eh? But that's what you've got to do. You've got to choose to be happy. And you've got to dress up. I mean, it does mean no good dressing up, but, you know, if you smile at somebody, it's amazing how many people either think you're weird or they'll smile back at you. <laughs> so, Wadey, three daughters, only three shotguns as well. <laughs> yeah, you are dead right. You know what? The first time I did that, it wasn't a gun because the amnesty had just happened, so I had to hand it in. <laughs> but apart from that, I, uh, I'd always wanted to do it. I had a, what, a 10-inch uh, carving knife, and Ooh. I was told he was coming round, and I thought, I'm just going to try it anyway. And he introduced himself, I don't know, for the sake of the um, sake of the exercise, his name was Barry. And the, my daughter said, oh, Dad, this is my boyfriend, Barry. And I went, G'day, Baz. And I had this knife, and I turned it round to the blunt end, and I slammed it on the bench and put it up to my face, looking straight past the blade into his eyes and said, do we need to say any more? Jesus, lady. Hey, I thought, I felt so good. I felt, it was only a one date thing because he never came back. But, and I'm sad about that because I didn't really want to scare him away, but I just wanted to do it once. And I walked away going, that was sensational. That's why I had girls, so I could have that one moment. <laughs> you probably practiced too, didn't you, mate? Yeah, that's true. And you know what? You're only, you're only going to have girls if you're fit. Have you, have you got any kids? No, not yet, mate. I'm pretty fit, oh. though. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're going to have girls. Welcome to the real world. Oh, Jesus, mate. Don't do that to me. Hey, get on with it. You'll love it. <laughs> All right, Paul, you're going to be hosting a private dinner party. You've got five invites. Only rules, yeah. no, no family or friends, but it can be anyone dead or alive. Who are you inviting to dinner? Wow. The, uh, the, um, I, I, would, I would invite Maradona because mm. I'll ask him why he was on speed coffee in Argentina because that's what he owned up to. They were on speed coffee. Uh, try and get that other shirt back. I think that they're the two reasons I'd invite him. <laughs> um, see. Um, am I allowed to say this? I'd invite the Pope. Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah. I would because I um I'm a practicing Catholic. I'm not very good. That's why I practice. But I would because um, he loved his football growing up in Argentina. Yeah. Um, so I would invite him. Uh, oh, Rebecca Gibney, because I think oh, she's beautiful. She is, isn't she? She is beautiful. She's a terrific actor, and she's a beautiful girl. So I would invite her just to say that to all, to all my mates, guess what? I met Rebecca Gibney. I don't know whether they'd go, who? But I would know. <laughs> I would know. Um, that's three, right? That's three, buddy. Um, you know what? Uh, dare I say this? I'd invite my brother, who's oh. dead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll say, sense. you miserable git. Why did you do that? He didn't do anything. Uh, he might come back and tell me what it's like on the other side. I think that's a bonus. 
Well, I hope so. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, man. no. I, I, <laughs> it happened uh, a long time ago. He had a brain hemorrhage. Yeah. Um, which is uh, quite ironic with my epilepsy. Who, but hereditary is a factor, isn't it? Really, when you think about things like that. But that'll be good because uh, he had the brain hemorrhage. Uh, he was in hot in hospital for a couple of days, and they turned the the machine off. Oh well, that's how. So I didn't I didn't get to say see you later, mate. I'll uh, I'll see you in a few years. Yeah. Um, nothing emotional, you know. I just love to see him again. Yeah, definitely. Just have another beer and yeah. just say hello. That, yeah, exactly. And the other one is the boss of Cadbury's Dairy Milk Chocolate. <laughs> you'll be you sweet to person, mate. You'll get along with my dad like a house on fire. Yes. Yeah, give me a cup of tea and a block of chocolate and I'll be a very, very happy man. <laughs> Everyone at home, I want you following Paul Wade, au, And on Twitter, he's pretty active. He's Wadey, W-A-D-E-Y, 06, his number. And that's on Twitter. Now, Paul, final question. Can yeah. you leave my audience with some words of inspiration in terms of everyone chasing their dreams? Listen, if you're obsessive-compulsive, ring one repeatedly. Pregnant balls of the highest order there. I don't know where <laughs> I was going. <laughs> you know, if you're going to... Just don't push one repeatedly. Be yeah. obsessive-compulsive, but don't just keep banging on the same number all the time. Open your mind to everything. Um, that's what I always tell kids. You know, don't box yourself. It'll mm. happen. Just keep doing what you do. Enjoy it. Embrace it. And it'll happen if it's meant to. Um, so if you want to be obsessive, compulsive, press one repeated, repeatedly. Otherwise, just get on with your life and enjoy it. Yeah, for sure. Really wise words. And <laughs> They're not really episode. wise words, but I, no, I just thought I'd come up different. with them. Yeah, I've, been, I've heard that one before. I, I like yeah. it. Like sometimes yeah. we do get a little bit too compulsive with something that's probably not going to happen, and we don't yeah. enjoy life too much sometimes. Yeah, to absolutely. But, so um, that's yeah. a freebie, and it's yours. You can keep that. Yeah, well, that's my soundbite of the day. I told you I wasn't a soundbite <laughs> guy, but I, I like that one. Yes, yes, I'm glad you do. Paul, I really appreciate you coming on talking with TK, and it's been an absolute pleasure and an honour to have you on the show, man. Nah, the pleasure's been mine. Keep up the good work, mate. See ya. Guys, we hope you enjoyed the episode with Paul Wade, another classic there with plenty of stories. Next on the cards, we've got another soccer player in the form of Matilda striker Kaya Simon. So a bit of a different approach, obviously with Paul being a little bit older, being a former soccer ruse, now we're going to tackle the present and one of uh, women's soccer's best players one of my favorite players and someone that really is representing herself and her country very very proud so tune in for kaya on the next one if you haven't yet check out some of our other episodes our last episodes have featured the likes of olympians michael klim natalie cook and jackie cooper so plenty there to catch up off catch up on if you haven't yet please tag me on any posts that you have if you're going to share the share the episodes on facebook or Instagram, I'm Tristan Cannell, or on Twitter, I am T Cannell Fitness. Now, until next time, I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking with TK.